0: Let us open Scripture together to the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, followed by Ephesians chapter 5. In both passages, we read about something about marriage, and that will be the focus of the preaching this morning as we hear God's Word in Genesis 2, the end of the chapter where God reveals more about what marriage is all about. So we begin our reading in Matthew 19, the verses 1 through 12, page 1047 in the Pew Bible. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. From here we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, in the Pew Bible, page 1245. 1245. The Apostle Paul, in his instructions, in the last half of this letter, comes to give instructions to the household, and he starts with the marriage relationship. Verse 22 her husband. Our text for the preaching this morning comes from Ephesians, no, from Genesis rather, Genesis 2, the verses 24 and 25, page 3 in the Pew Bible. So as you know, we've been Working our way through this chapter, and last week we dealt with the creation of woman and the giving of the woman to man in marriage. We came to the end of verse 23, so we pick it up at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife. We were both naked and were not ashamed. After the gospel has been proclaimed, we'll sing once again from Psalm 63. Psalm 63, the stanzas 3 and 4, where it speaks about our close covenant relationship with the Lord. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, what exactly is marriage? This thing called marriage we hear about a lot, we talk about in some circles a lot, but what exactly is it? We know from our text of last week that it's certainly the union of one man with one woman, in a holy state of matrimony under God. We know that it's God's idea, it's God's gift, and it's entirely God's to define. So I don't think I have to convince you that some of the inventions of our culture, like common law marriage or homosexual marriage, these are just man's inventions, I don't have to convince you that they are wrong that they're just not legitimate, they're not true marriages. Those might be two people living together, and they might be engaging in sexual activity, and maybe they even made promises together. But those, in God's eyes, are not marriages. So what is it then about true marriage, as designed by God, that makes it special, that makes it unique? What's happening when a man and a woman make vows to love and care for each other before God and His church? Why? Why would the Lord want a man to pledge that he would sacrificially love and lead his wife all the days they both shall live, and also why would the Lord... Want a woman to promise to respect and follow her husband in good days and bad for the rest of their lives. Like, why would the Lord want that? Well, it's because the Lord is using marriage for a purpose. He's using, especially, your and my Christian marriages to showcase to the world His covenant, His beautiful covenant relationship with His bride the church. so I proclaim to you this word of God, the Lord displays His own covenant in man's marriage covenant. The Lord displays His own covenant in your marriage. So we'll see three things. Marriage is thus an exclusive covenant. Marriage is an intimate covenant, and it is an honorable covenant. Well, the opening verse of our text is very familiar to most of us, I think. It's it's a key passage in the institution of marriage. It's quoted in the New Testament several times. It's also quoted in our marriage form. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's very strong language. The man shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one, one flesh. This is no casual relationship, here today, gone tomorrow. Man and wife, they, they, they come together in a new and in a permanent union. They become one flesh. That verb, hold fast to, that refers to a very powerful commitment or bond. A synonym would be to cleave to or to cling to, like we'll sing from Psalm 63 after the preaching, I cling to You, says the psalmist, I cling to You, O Lord, my strong deliverer. And when you start looking at that verb, to, to hold fast or cling, you find that it's used very often in a, the context of a covenant What's a covenant? A covenant is a binding relationship between two parties where promises are made and obligations are expressed and the two parties are bound together in this holy commitment. God has bound Himself to His people in this holy commitment He calls a covenant. And then in that covenant, the covenant partners, they are to cling to, hold fast to each other. We find Moses, who wrote Genesis, later in Deuteronomy, he exhorts the Israelites to do this very thing. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, therefore he says to the Israelites, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him, for the Lord is your life and your strength for the length of days. Well, this idea of holding fast, that is no, that's no quick thing that you do. That's not just like a, giving a quick hug. It's not a temporary union. No, this holding fast means you stick with your covenant partner. Whether it's God as your covenant partner or your wife or your husband, you stick together like glue through thick and thin, even in the troubled days. You see, brothers and sisters, marriage is a holy covenant between husband and wife. It's a clinging to each other all the days of your lives while together you cling to God. So you've got a covenant horizontally, and together you have a covenant vertically. And your horizontal covenant is meant to reflect the vertical covenant. God even calls your marriage a covenant in Malachi 2 verse 14. And we learn throughout the Scriptures that God designed marriage to reflect to the world His own covenant. Many times in Scripture, He likens his relationship to his people as a marriage. He calls himself husband. He calls Israel bride or wife. Think of the whole book of Hosea. So brothers and sisters, understand that your marriage relationship is meant to be a mirror, a mirror of God's relationship with his people. That's what Paul is writing about in Ephesians 5. Perhaps you'd like to turn with me there for a moment. Ephesians 5 where he makes a running comparison between uh, a comparison between the relationship of husband to wife and the relationship between Christ and his church. So Ephesians 5 verse 22 we read there that wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And further down, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And to make the parallel unmistakable, Paul quotes in verse 31, our text, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he goes on, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this thing called marriage... It refers in some way to Christ and the church. So we have, to, we have to back up the train a little bit, brothers and sisters, and understand that when God formed Eve out of Adam's rib and brought her to the man, when He thereby established this marriage covenant bond, that was not simply a means for man to fulfill the mandate of Genesis 1.28. To be fruitful and multiply, though it certainly includes that. It also was not only a means to alleviate the aloneness of man. We looked at that last week, right? That certainly accomplished it as well. But the higher purpose, the more, most profound design in human marriage is to reflect to creation how God covenants with His bride, how God loves and treasures and cares for His people, how God sticks to His people like glue. From creation already, God had in mind to display in our human marriage's how Jesus is one with his bride, how there is this beautiful union and communion, holy and deep fellowship between the Savior and his people, the groom and his bride, the church. Do we, husbands and wives, do we give thought to that? That's what's going on in our marriages, that's the bigger purpose. We cannot boil marriage down to a series of agreements and promises, to mere obligation and vow. Of course, all those things are part of it. Your marriage covenant is meant for something bigger yet, to reflect this incredible covenant of love that the Creator has with us human creatures. Is your marriage doing that? When people look at the way you interact as husband and wife, do they see a mirror image of the way Christ interacts with the church and the church with Christ? We could ask the question this way. How you treat your wife, is that how God is treating His church? No husband can sit here with arms folded and say, Well, I've done my bit. It's her turn. I've done my duty. Think of how God acts with his wife. Would God ever say such a thing? In God's covenant with his people, he never stops. He never stops at the bare letter of the law. He always goes far beyond, doesn't he? He gives everything he has. He even gave his life for his bride. Think of that. He gave his life for her. So brothers who are married, let me ask, is that how you deal with your wife? Is that how you relate to her? Is that how your wife experiences you? Let's flip it around for a second. Husbands, by nature, and I'm a husband, so I say this of myself equally, husbands can be demanding and selfish. That comes easily to us. But the husband who truly reflects Jesus Christ will be known and be experienced by his wife and others as giving and selfless, looking always to do good to the apple of his eye, which is what his wife should be. Brothers, does your wife perceive that in you? If you asked her, would she say yes? Would she say, yeah, my husband is always giving me much more than he asks of me? Why don't you ask your wife that question sometime? And wives, the way you act toward your husband... Is that how the church acts toward Christ? Now, sad to say, in the church here on earth, you do not have a perfect example to follow because the church is not sinless like Christ is. But the ideal for the church's relationship and behavior is spelled out in Scripture. So, wives, sisters, do you give yourself from the heart over to your husband? in exclusive devotion? Do you respect him just in the way that the church is called to respect Christ? Do you follow your husband's lead? Do you obey his direction even when it may go against the grain? Now, submission has its limits, of course. For instance, you must not follow your husband into sin against God's commandments, then you must say, no, I'm not submitting to that. But in all other matters, do you trust? Do you trust that God has given him as your head? Do you trust that He is leading you according to the authority given Him and that He's doing that for your benefit? Do Do you give yourself over to your husband's leading? Are you encouraging your man to be the spiritual leader in your home, the Christ-like head of your family? Do you pray for your husband that way? Are you assisting him so he can better do that task? Does your husband perceive in you that this is your attitude and this is what you do? If you asked your husband what would he say about your, your calling to be respectful and submissive, Husbands and wives, why don't you have that discussion amongst yourselves later today? How do you perceive each other? How does the other perceive you? It's when we understand the parallel to God's covenant that we can better understand the exclusive nature of the marriage bond itself. Think again of God. God the husband has eyes only for his wife. He would never... Betray his wife, would he? There's no unfaithfulness in the Lord. And God in Scripture often bemoans the fact that Israel broke the covenant by committing spiritual adultery with other gods. Again, the book of Hosea, Ezekiel 16. God's covenant contains two parties. It's the Lord Himself and His people. In the same way, marriage contains only two parties, the man and his wife. That's something our text stresses as well. Back to Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A man has to leave his mom and dad, it says. By implication, the woman also has to separate herself from her parents and join her husband, meaning that together, husband and wife form a new independent family unit. But to do that, there has to be a measure of separation from the other parties, all other parties, and the Lord mentions here the closest party, the parental home. You have to leave mom and dad and cleave to your spouse. Now, let me hasten to add that this does not in any way, shape, or form bring disrespect or dishonor to mom and dad. They are not to be suddenly treated like Uh, anyone else or, or less than someone else. On the contrary, we know from God's fifth commandment we must honor our father and mother. Even all our days, we must honor them. The relationship changes when you leave your parental home, but the honor remains. It does mean, Genesis 2, does mean that the husband departs from living underneath the authority of his parents he now becomes head of his own home and his own wife. The wife leaves the authority of her father's home and joins herself to a new authority, her own husband. And the parental home that they each left, that, that, those parental homes, they may not interfere in the new marriage. There needs to be a, a leaving, a break. You know, brothers and sisters, there's no quicker way to damage your child's marriage than to usurp the authority of the new marriage covenant. It's one thing for parents to care about their child's well-being, to be ready with advice and help when called upon, but it's another to stick your nose in where it doesn't belong. Parents... We have to be mindful of our place. We have to back off and give the new couple space to make their own way. And young married brides and bridegrooms, there's there's no quicker way to drive a wedge between yourself and your marriage partner than to go running to mom or dad for advice before you've discussed it with each other. It's absolutely beneficial to go together together, as husband and wife, to seek out the advice of your parents or the in-laws, but it's another to allow your parents more respect and more influence than you do your spouse. You've got to cling to each other as husband and wife. And as a new unit, you together lean on the Lord. You together make your decisions. You together walk through life. So do not sin by letting other parties come in between you And your God-given mate and if it's the case that your parents may not come between the two of you it's how much more than the case that no other party may come between you this is an exclusive relationship one man one woman bound in holy wedlock would we be displaying God's covenant if we took on additional partners or if we had secret liaisons, or even if we flirted with members of the opposite sex. Would we be reflecting God's marriage with His people? The Lord Jesus underlined this point when the Pharisees challenged Him. They came to Him. They wanted to tangle Him up with a question about divorce, right? We read that in Matthew 19. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for just any reason, any cause? But the Lord sees their trickery, and He penetrates right through it. He says, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus concludes, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The two are one. In other words, let nothing come between the two of you. Not another person, not another issue, not anything. You are one. You belong together. Preserve that unity. It's a sad reality that we know of broken marriages, also in church life. Perhaps we have it in our own family circle. And that will be a source of great grief for everyone involved. For as the Lord Jesus said in the same section of Matthew 19, from the beginning it was not so. It's not God's design to drift apart, much less to break apart. Some marriages we know, they have gotten so far that they are legally terminated also in the eyes of god but there are other marriages that are not so down the road of separation or divorce they're not that far they're not beyond repair should we not do everything we can Should we not, as couples in the first place, as brothers and sisters in the know where we can, should we not be busy pulling out all the stops to preserve those marriages, to strengthen those unions, lest Satan gain another victory? He's the only one who wins when marriages break apart. Would we not bring honor to our God and joy in our lives by working hard on true reconciliation? Doing that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Would Christ give up on His church? Or would the church give up on her Lord? Brothers and sisters, work on your own marriage in the first place. Every marriage needs tending, needs strengthening, needs work. Keep your marriage unions holy. Keep yourselves from any impurity. And rather come to enjoy the intimacy that God gives you with your spouse. For that is one of the special aspects of the marriage covenant. It's to be one of the closest, deepest human relationships possible. The two shall become one flesh. So, this idea of holding fast husband and wife, it finds its highest expression in the, the physical union of their two bodies, in sexual intercourse, or in what we more often say, in making love. The world, our society, has turned this concept just upside down, haven't they? The world teaches and promotes what they call having sex it's to the world it's something casual it's something easy it's something you do lightly almost on the side hookups are very common where people just they use apps and they just meet for sexual activity and then you go your way there's no relationship in that there's no bond there's no love there's just a little thrill on blueberry hill To say it very bluntly, the act of becoming one flesh has become for many merely a way to satisfy lust, personal lust. It's a a self-centered transaction, nothing more. And that, what the world just embraces full on, that lust and self-centeredness, is something each of us, also as Christians, we can relate to because it's part of our sinful heart, isn't it? Lust is there. Selfishness is there. The temptations are real to indulge our sexual appetite in one way or another before we become married, or even, if we are married, outside of our marriage in an illegitimate way. But brothers and sisters, look at the place that God gives to sexual intimacy. It is totally within marriage between one man and one woman. Sexual intimacy, it's, it's something that is to, be, is to develop over time out of the basis of a loving, committed communion with one another. It's not the thing you do by the second or third date. The Holy Spirit's very clear. Look at the order in our text. First, you leave your parental home, and then you cleave to your wife. That implies that first you establish a personal bond, a a new covenant relationship with your future wife or husband. After all, you don't just break off this powerful bond with your parents just like that, nor do you enter into a new bond or commitment at the drop of a hat. No, this idea of clinging or holding fast to one other person means you choose that person carefully and you, you prepare yourself to enter into a lifelong bond. You only do that once you're well acquainted. When there's trust there between the two of you, full trust. When there's love, when there's understanding, when there's unity and faith, all those things need to be in place. And then you may come together and enjoy the blessings of lovemaking. First, you enter into a covenant of love, and then you enjoy the fruit of intimate union. For if you do it backwards and invert the order, like the world wants to tempt you to do, if you try to taste the fruit of sexual intimacy before cleaving to each other in holy covenant you will taste only a bitter fruit. Why? Because that fruit is not ripe yet. It's not ready to be enjoyed yet. God hasn't made it ripe in your life yet. It is a sin to engage in sexual intimacy prior to the marriage covenant. And in that sin, you will experience shame, you will experience guilt, before the face of God, you will not have peace, and with each other you will know that wrong was done. Brothers and sisters, my young brothers and sisters not yet married, do not do not pluck that fruit before it is time. Do not go into the bedroom before you have first gone to the church and pledged yourselves to each other before God in holy wedlock. That's the biblical God-ordained way. But once you have done that, beloved, hear this as well, once you have covenanted with each other, then absolutely go and enjoy the fruit of that union. We shouldn't overlook that either. That's part of the Bible's message. God has created sexual intercourse for our enjoyment, our pleasure as man and wife. So by all means, merry brothers and sisters, take joy in making love together. You know, sometimes people have thought in the past that sex is, is merely a functional thing. Its, it's uh, only purpose is for the creation, the procreation of children. And any pleasure, what happens to get out of that act is just kind of a side benefit, not really the main point, some have thought. But that is just not biblical. In the Bible, both those aspects go together. Joy and procreation. Listen to the Holy Spirit's exhortations in Proverbs 5, and understand here the sexual metaphors. You can look up the larger context later. It's Proverbs 5. This is what the Holy Spirit says to, the, to a man. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always with her love. Sexual intimacy is not to be a chore, but a delight, you see. And we are encouraged, we are called to embrace that. It's also never to be a selfish act where one partner finds his or her own personal satisfaction and leaves it at that. Christians, let's just pull back the camera a minute, Christians are never to be selfish in anything, are we? How much more than when it comes to sexual intimacy? Husbands, let me ask the brothers, husbands, are you tenderly loving and serving your wife and her needs in this area, are you making sure that your wife is fulfilled in this way? Do you ask her about that? We ought not ever to enter the bedroom thinking about what we will receive, but rather our thought be of what we are privileged to give. It is better to give than to receive, also in this area. We put her needs ahead of our own. And wives, in a similar manner, are you seeking to love your husband in this area with care and affection so that he also is fulfilled? Do you ask him about this? Love making is never to be one-sided. It's designed to be mutual. There should be mutual enjoyment. As the entire song of Solomon makes clear, the whole book speaks about a, a joyful union and communion of husband and wife. Why don't you read it together as husband and wife for nighttime devotions? And think through the poetry of intimacy that's in that book. Young people, young brothers and sisters, you, you often hear the message that you ought to stay away from sex before marriage. And that's a biblical message. That's God's will for your life. But understand the reason now, okay? It's not that God wants to take away pleasure from your life. No, no, no. It's God's idea to preserve good and true and wholesome pleasure for you. In the context of marriage, God is protecting you from perverting and emptying an an experience that within marriage is so rich and beautiful. He's preserving you from lust in order to keep you for love, true love with your wife or your husband. Outside of marriage, what is Self-gratifying and sinful becomes inside of marriage when it's done in that Christ-like manner. It becomes a source of mutual pleasure. Pleasure without shame. For marriage is also an honorable covenant. That's the last reflection in our text this morning. Verse 25 mentions shame. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When you read that, you will know that it's a foreshadowing of dark things to come. It's the first mention of something negative, shame. In chapter 3, we will read that the man and his wife broke God's commandment. Their eyes were open, and they both realized they were naked. Then their lives became filled with shame. And that's something we still know about today, isn't it? We all have sin. By nature, we are all sinners. We all have shame before the face of God many times. But before man sinned, husband and wife were both naked and felt no shame. In their holy marriage bond... In their union of one flesh, Adam and Eve felt no shame whatsoever. There was honor in their marriage. In history, there has been a time when some thought that intercourse in marriage was a shameful thing, not to be talked about. But the Creator says, I gave sexual intimacy in the beginning to husband and wife as an honorable gift It's not nakedness by itself that brought shame. It's not the act of physical union that brings embarrassment. It is rebellion against God. That's where the shame comes from. And after that rebellion, Adam and Eve couldn't even look at each other without some sense of shame, and so they had to cover up their bodies. But now consider, what has the Lord Jesus done? What has He done but remove our sin and guilt. Remove our shame. When we trust in the Lord Jesus, our sins are forgiven and our shame before God, it falls away. We don't have any reason to be ashamed anymore when our sin is forgiven, so there's no need to be ashamed between husband and wife anymore the wife with, and the husband with whom we have covenanted in the Lord, Christ has washed also that shame away. And that's why the Lord placed the Song of Solomon in the Bible. And that's why we have the Apostle Paul in Ephesians and Colossians giving instructions about marriage and sexual intercourse. Because it's still a precious gift and it has been redeemed. What was lost in paradise has been recovered by Jesus on Golgotha. So, brothers and sisters, you may freely take joy in your spouse, the spouse God has given you, without shame. For God looks upon your union as holy and honorable through the blood of the Savior. And do we not also, in this aspect of marriage, do we not also reflect God's covenant with His people? Of course, God has no such physical union with His bride. Because God is spirit, but God does have an intimate spiritual union with His church, doesn't He? Are we not one with Christ through His Spirit? The Spirit who lives in our bodies and the Holy Spirit who lives in Christ who is in heaven. He binds us together in this mysterious union that you can't fully explain. It's this wondrous union that we'll experience at the Lord's Supper next week as well a union with our Savior through the Spirit. Well then, brothers and sisters, there's only one thing left to do. Glorify the Lord in your marriage. Glorify Him in all its aspects. Keep your sexual desire, keep it exclusively for the one you will marry or the one you have married. Before you become one flesh, make sure you are one in everything else. And then, once married, enjoy. Enjoy each other in the marriage bed to the honor of your God. Give pleasure, receive pleasure in a union that you know is without shame. Amen.